Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton recording live in Los Angeles. Well, it's not really live because you'll be listening to a taped interview of this, but in Los Angeles in the rain, I am very excited this week because I don't have one guest or two guests, but we have three guests. This is, I think, a first on the Inside the Hive podcast. First up is Sydney Gressel, who is a nurse and a nurse practitioner at UCSF, Benioff Children's Hospital. Uh, she works in the pediatric emergency department, is working on the front lines of the COVID-19 crisis in San Francisco, and has started a, an organization that is helping not only feed doctors around the country um, as the uh, crisis is going on, but also helping local businesses. So I'm really excited to talk to Sydney today. Um, after that, my colleague Joe Hagan is sitting down with J.B. Pritzker, the governor of Illinois, who is also very much on the front lines of the coronavirus crisis. He has some not-so-nice things to say about Donald Trump. It's a fascinating, amazing little interview, so definitely listen to that. And then third, last but not least, uh, Sarah Fryer, who is a Bloomberg reporter, is coming on the show to talk about her new book, No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram. It's a true page-turner. It's about how Instagram became what it is today, the infighting between Mark Zuckerberg and Kevin Systrom and, and so on and so forth, and also how social networks are dealing with the crisis as it's unfolding and and, and, and reacting to the way people are using these platforms. So um, without further ado, we'll begin with Sydney. We have Sydney Gressel. Uh, she's a nurse and nurse practitioner at UCF's Benioff's Children's Hospital in the Pediatric Emergency Department. And she's here because she started a special program uh, that is helping doctors and nurses and so on get food during the coronavirus and also helping push money back into the economy to help local restaurants. Sid, thanks for joining us. Yes, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So tell me a little bit about how this all got started and uh, and we can go from there. So um, our group is called Frontline Foods, um, and the whole thing started just a couple weeks ago. We've actually only been up and running since kind of the middle of March. It started off with a text conversation between myself and a friend named Frank Barbieri, and he was asking, how can I help, which is always the best question to ask. And um, at that time, I had suggested that maybe he could sponsor a pizza party for my staff. We were working long hours as we were ramping up our response to the COVID crisis, changing all of our practices and protocols, pitching a tent for accelerated care outside of our unit. And so the, um, you know, the, the work 
felt very uh, intense. And so from there, it spiraled into a much bigger project. Um, Frank and another friend named Ryan Sarver got the idea to um, maybe put this out to the larger community. It started off with a tweet where we started actually fundraising to um, do two things. One is to support clinicians and um, provide meals, not just for my department, but we are now delivering to seven hospitals in San Francisco um, and provide meals for clinicians in this um, COVID response, but then also to put that money back into the restaurant industry, which is just being gutted currently um, with everything closed. Um, as we started this project, uh, friends in other cities became really interested in the work we were doing in San Francisco. And so we made our guidelines available as an open source platform and started posting. This is how we did it in our area, you know, modify as necessary for your region. But one by one, little um, cities started popping up um, doing similar works. And so now we've united under one banner that we're calling Frontline Foods. And we also have a partnership that's with um, World Central Kitchen, which is an international nonprofit that does disaster relief work. So um, we've become a nonprofit um, and it's just become an, a tremendous, huge project in a matter of uh, just a few weeks. So one of the things that I found fascinating when you and I first talked about this is you, a lot of times with these kinds of insane moments in society, these these cataclysmic uh, times, there are th things that you don't necessarily think about that that um, that stand out. And the thing that you mentioned to me, which which at first didn't, you know, I had I just really hadn't put two, two, two together about and and where this really became so important is, you know, we now you have a moment where everyone is inside, a lot of restaurants are shut down, doctors and nurses can't just go to the the store and get some you know get dinner when they're uh when they're working especially these insane long hours um and and how this was kind of a response to that but also a way to um to you know to get back to the community what was the moment where you kind of started to realize that, that this could actually be something that was going to help on the front lines well so the initial idea was kind of just um to boost morale you know, and then within a few days after Frank and I had that initial text conversation, the shelter in place was enacted in San Francisco and restaurants were forced to close. So what started off as, you know, wouldn't this boost everybody's spirits actually became much more of a core necessity. Um, it became much more difficult to source food. You know, like you spoke to all the restaurants in walking distance of my hospital um, are now closed. There's no option to step off the unit and just grab something and come back to work. Um, and then also all the grocery stores have long lines. You can't pop into Whole Foods for two minutes before, you know, you run to your shift. It takes an hour plus. Plus, with the shelter in place um, happening, I either need to take my children with me or figure out what to do with them. And then I'm standing with them in line for an hour. And I'm somebody who's taking care of either COVID patients or rule out COVID patients on every shift. So this program is so helpful because it keeps clinicians like myself um, able to just come um, to work and go back home and to not have to spend unnecessary time in public. You don't want me to be the person in the grocery store next to you because of, um, you know, my higher risk um, exposures. And so this program in a matter of time just became something that actually really fulfilled a need that wasn't even quite fully there when we first started it. 
So, um, yeah, and, and a similar picture is happening in cities throughout the country. I, you know, we've got 25 cities up and running currently with our project. I think we have another dozen or so in the wings waiting to be onboarded. And every region, of course, has a slightly different way that this is hitting them. But actually sourcing food has become a challenge for clinicians. Um, you know, we, we do have job security right now, um, but we don't have a whole lot of time. And so this, uh, this project has really helped fulfill that need and make this portion of our day so much easier. It allows me to spend more time with my children when I'm off of work. It allows me to possibly get in a workout before I come to work, just knowing I'm going to be able to have a delicious hot meal um, there once I, um, you know, get to get to work. What are the what are the protocols that you guys use to ensure that, you know, the food that is coming, you know, into the hospital is not bringing with it COVID-19 from, you know, That's is this something that question. you guys think about or worry about? It's, is it- it's, it's actually been our top concern, and that has been one of the top concerns for hospital administrations throughout the country whenever we have pitched one of these projects. Of course, we've had to work with hospital buy-in. Um, initially, when this project started just a few weeks ago, you could walk into any hospital entrance and deliver food as a, an Uber Eats person or as a particular restaurant delivering food, and just within a, a matter of days, again, um, into this project, Hospitals throughout the country changed their protocols for people even just coming and going from the building. So now um, all of the entrances are locked. We have one single lobby space that you can come to. Everybody is going through a symptom screening before they're allowed to enter the hospital. There's no visitors allowed. You know, so restrictions and hypervigilance have sort of kicked in in our heightened response to COVID throughout all of the hospitals throughout the whole country. And so we've tried to work in accordance with those heightened and appropriate concerns. One of the things that we're doing with all of the restaurants that we're partnering with is we're running through the same symptom screening for their employees and anybody who's preparing or delivering food. We ask them the same set of questions that I get asked as a hospital staff as I'm coming to work, you know, asking about symptoms, asking about contacts. And if anybody um, is positive to one of those screens, they're not participating in food preparation or delivery. And so um, we've got that portion in place. Another item that we were doing is we're having every restaurant provide individually packaged or individually wrapped meals so that there's no food sharing, there's no family style meals. Um, so that's another item that helps keep things safe for everybody. And then also we're not having any delivery persons coming into the hospital. Um, that helps to protect them as well as it helps to protect us as staff. We have them contact us when they get to the door, we come out, with a cart, load up, you know, all the goods and um, the exchange happens in a safe way externally. So those are some of the things that we've designed in partnership with our hospitals. Um, and in fact, um, you know, the communities throughout the country have uh, rallied to try to offer donations, in-kind donations, different vendors coming in, people dropping off food. And the hospitals have been really concerned, like, you know, we have no quality control here. We have no infection control. We don't know where this food is coming from. We don't know who and where and when it was prepped. So um, at the place where I work at UCSF, with both of the campuses that are involved in our project, they've actually put um, a stop to other vendors or other groups bringing food in because they don't have the same kinds of safety protocols in place. And it's actually created more chaos or burden for the hospitals when people just drop off, you know, some unknown quantity of whatever. Um, and so they, they've really appreciated the fact that our group has come, you know, through the front door, so to speak, in getting their permissions and their um, onboarding with our, our project. So um, we've been um, approved to continue our work because of that level of thoughtfulness and planning. And how much, how much money have you guys raised so far? 
So nationally, the number that I'd heard um, a couple of days ago was $1.6 million. Um, and that's, of course, throughout all of the cities in the U.S. Um, we've had some... Wow. Um, We've had some larger donors. We've had some donor matching happen, but we've also had these incredible um, one-off donations from, you know, friends and from even from strangers. I posted on a Facebook moms group that I was doing this project and a number of moms in the San Francisco community who I don't even know, um, you know, donated money. In fact, one woman even said that she'd organized a virtual talent show with her <laughs> coworkers and they had like a talent show on Zoom as a fundraiser for our project. And um, they donated the money to Frontline Foods. And then because we're a nonprofit, they were able to get their company to do donor matching. And, um, you know, I just was so touched by that. So it's like this this project really speaks to two big interests and two big passions for the larger community. People in one um, move get to support clinicians like myself, where we're going in and putting in our our time and taking on personal risk to care for our community. We're putting in long hours, um, you know, taking care of patients at a time where there's so much um, craziness inside of the hospitals with what's coming in. And then at the same time, people with that same donation are supporting local restaurants that the industry is otherwise just gutted right now. And um, so they can contribute to two important causes. I like to think of it as, you know, feeding um, one bird, with, I'm sorry, feeding uh, two birds with one seed kind of thing. Um, and so it's it's been really just touching to see the community response. And, um, and I'm so blown away by the group of organizers on the back end who are running this thing throughout the country. You, so you have, uh, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's around 300 organizers. What, what's, how do you, when I look at people that start nonprofits and I have a few friends that have done it in the past or start businesses, it's usually they, you know, this is a massive infrastructure that they need to put together to do it. You guys were able to do it very quickly with just off the shelf technologies. How have you done that? So um, I've learned about some new technologies as a nurse. This is not my world, um, but we've been using Airtable. We've been using Slack and we've been working with um, the organizers are folks from all different industries. We've got tech people. We've got marketing. We've got designs. We've got people who are handling our logistics and our data, basically people who heard about what we were doing and then have been volunteering their time, their expertise to you know, use technologies and efficiencies to get people centralized, to make our ideas actionable, to get us up and running in a really short amount of time. So this is really a situation where um, the tech world and uh, like, you know, the products like uh, Airtable and Slack have really been put to a very good use. And it's been amazing to see the kinds of compassion and collaboration and teamwork and, um, you know, intelligence and just uh, just such good drive behind so many people coming together to make this happen in such a short amount of time. Like our project is really like about three weeks old at this point. Wow. And it's amazing the kind of momentum that we have um, up and running here. You know, it's such a beautiful human story, um, bringing together the medical world, the food industry, um, and then the skills from the tech industry to to serve everybody, really. What's it like in the hospital right now? Is it is it chaotic or is it is it um is it kind of you know the protocols are all put in place so it's not what's it actually like on the ground there so i should be really clear that it depends where you are um mm. you know on the west coast we are not seeing the numbers that they are seeing in new york city specifically um and in some other um you know major cities uh detroit miami new orleans there's um some cities that are getting really hit hard right now with actual number of COVID cases and COVID deaths. 
um, and other regions and other cities, not so hard. So part one is it depends on where you are um, and the kinds of patients that you're seeing and how sick those people are and what resources are available to you. You know, there's been an issue nationwide around accessing PPE, which is personal protective equipment that includes things like masks and gowns and visors and goggles, the kinds of stuff that keeps us safe as clinicians. Um, there's been issues around access to ventilators. Um, and so it really depends on your practice environment and, um, you know, what facilities um, you're, you're practicing in and what's available in those places. So there's um, a lot of difference um, throughout the country um, in all of those elements. I also can speak to the fact that I work in a pediatric emergency department. And, you know, thank goodness this illness, the nature of the virus is it does not affect children as seriously, it does not as commonly cause serious illness in, in young people as it does in adults and in older people. So in my particular department, it's nowhere near as um, busy and crazy and chaotic as it is, I'm sure, in other facilities. Um, but then to speak to your answer about, you know, protocols and policies and so on, this has been an evolving response. I think, you know, as clinicians, we always train for kind of worst case scenarios. And I've been a healthcare provider through a number of different things, you know, H1N1, Ebola, SARS. This is something that is just fully next level, just in terms of the way that it's affecting all of our economy is that schools are closed, that, you know, um, cities are shut down and sheltering in place. So this is a, a whole other level of response that um, is very different for all of us. And so um, the response that the hospitals is mounting is something that is also evolving and changing and um, is being informed by experts and specialists. We have epidemiologists and infection prevention teams who are giving us their best input, which, you know, sometimes includes um, CDC guidelines. It sometimes also builds on the expertise of other um, specialists in our facility. So um, I would say that there is a very thoughtful, very organized response to all of this throughout the country. Um, and then the way that it actually manifests is a little bit dependent on the practice environment and the resources available to clinicians in each space. All right. So where can people go to uh, to donate and help out and, and, Great and question. be a part Thank of this? You. Um, so our website is frontlinefoods.org. And if you go there, you can see the chapters that are up and running. You have the option to donate locally. You can pick a city of your choice um, or you can donate nationally. And the big thing here with our national funds, what we are doing as a group is we are identifying the places that are the least resourced, the under-resourced areas where there's this um, gap between how hard they're being hit with the acuity and with mortality related to COVID, the number of COVID cases, as well as what's already in place in that region, what kind of infrastructure do they have? And then our group is seeking to help fill that gap to provide financial support to get chapters up and running in places that don't have the same fundraising capabilities or infrastructure as maybe some of the coastal cities and so on. So frontlinefoods.org and people can go and find out more about everything that we're doing and support, like I said, either locally or nationally. Um, you know, all of our money is going directly to support the restaurants in all of these regions. So you can support your favorite places as well as um, support your clinicians. And, you know, I think part of what's happening here is when we're done with this or when we've, um, you know, overcome this particular COVID crisis, we really want San Francisco, of course, the, the heart of San Francisco is our restaurants and our food culture here. And we really want to have that available to us when we come out of this. And so this is one place where we can put our money and put our attention to help support sort of that 
that longer term picture for this industry that's so important to all of us. Well, Sid, thank you so much for taking the time today. I know you're incredibly busy and thanks so much for doing this. And yeah, um, thank you for your time. Good luck out there. I appreciate it. All right. You take care. Stay healthy. Wash hands. Yes. Wash, wash, wash. Thank you so much. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Hive. Next up, we have Joe Hagan interviewing J.B. Pritzker, the governor of Illinois. Governor, thanks so much for uh, getting on the phone with us today. I appreciate it very much. Of, co- of course, Joe. Glad to do it. So uh, I know you're probably in the middle of... Uh, all kinds of incoming right now. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about what's the status of the coronavirus in in Illinois today, as of as of this week. Well, as uh, some have predicted, we're you know we're moving toward our peaking uh, period. Uh, we predict that that will be somewhere between the middle of April and the end of April. Um, you know, we've had an increase in cases, of course and an increase in deaths uh, every day. Uh, and we're, uh, you know, we, we have some glimmers of, of, of hope about uh, the, the curve bending. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've seen numbers that indicate that it might be. Uh, and, you know, it's hard to put our faith in all of that because every day, there are new deaths to report, and that's very hard, frankly. Um, but uh, having said that, uh, we're, uh, you know, we're prepared or preparing for the worst. Uh, we have built out uh, new hospital beds, new uh, alternate care facilities all across the state, and we're watching very closely the number of available ventilators, ICU beds, uh, hospital beds, yeah. and, of course, the caseload. Right. So you, you're going towards your peak. Does that mean that you're seeing increases still, though? It's it's building towards a peak. It's not on the back end of one. It's not coming down, per se. That's correct. Yeah. So, you know, you've been pretty vocal uh, in the last week, uh, you know, appealing to the federal government to kind of step in, kind of control the flow of supplies and, and you know, show some kind of coordination from the uh, from the top, and that hasn't happened. Is there any sign that that's changing? Have you had any calls, you know, with the White House? Has there been any signs of a change in the strategy? Well, to be clear, uh, you know, I have uh, we have had lo- lots of help from the federal government in the form of 
uh, the Army Corps of Engineers and the Army, who are just amazing, I might want to tell you um, that, you know, we have our, yeah. our McCormick Place Convention Center has been uh, built out. Our, you know, our great union tradesmen here in Chicago, along with uh, the Army Corps, have done this amazing job. Uh, you know, it's a 3,000-bed facility that will be completed soon. And uh, so we've had a lot of help in that way. Um, we also have received, you know, after my uh, public complaining and, uh, you know, as the president says, my, you know, my uh, telling the truth about what's been happening, uh, we've received 600 ventilators from the federal government, finally, which is very helpful. We've asked for many, many more, um, but not received them. Our PPE orders are not being filled by the federal government and the national stockpile at all anymore. Uh, and so we've been, you know, for the last month, really, we've been out in the in the uh, supply chain uh, attempting to acquire uh, PPE of all sorts, N95 masks, goggles, gowns, uh, right. everything that we need. I mean, I found it shocking that, you know, that the government, the federal government's helping bring some of this in from overseas and then giving it to private companies to farm out in a kind of market uh, environment and forcing you guys to bid, um, which you've said has caused, uh, you know, you to pay more than you would otherwise. But what do you, yeah. I, my question for you is, you know, you're a, a uh, you understand politics really well and you've been around the block. What is Trump in the federal government? What is the logic behind what they're doing? I mean, it does seem like they are um, rewarding allies and making it more difficult for non-political allies. Do you see some of that happening? I think what's really happening is that they were just caught completely unprepared. And when there was some any realization within his administration that this was, you know, a massive potential crisis, uh, the president was publicly downplaying it. Um, publicly saying that uh, there is, you know, this is a hoax uh, or that this is just like the flu. It'll pass right on by, you know, no problem. Uh, and so when finally, you know, he was faced with with the, the death toll and the case numbers rising rapidly, uh, I think, you know, you saw there was one press conference finally where he came out and and, you know, was reading from a script. Uh, you know, yeah. that that uh, the federal government was now going to try and do something. And so uh, so that's what was really happening. I, I in terms of rewarding people who are political allies or not, um, I, I it's hard to, for me to make that judgment call. Uh, what I can tell you is that uh, that we were promised quite a lot uh, and a, a fraction of that has been delivered. I'm grateful for what has been delivered. But don't make promises that you can't keep or don't intend to keep. Um, and it also makes us not trust the, the, the White House or the federal government when promises aren't kept. And so we've had to just finally say, well, then we're not going to rely upon any promises that are made. And we're just going to uh, act as if we're an independent nation here, um, which isn't right. the way this ought to work. I talk to governors all over the country. I've been talking to them regularly for you know many weeks now uh, about this problem and and Republicans and Democrats all acknowledge that the federal government has fallen down on the job. Um, we're all grateful for the 
the Army, the Army Corps of Engineers, the military, and all that they have delivered for us. Uh, but the White House has promised, you know, good uh, ventilators, things that would save people's lives that they have not delivered. And, and, and we're all competing. I mean, for me to go out and compete against California, New York, and countries outside of the United States to get the life-saving equipment that we need. And, oh, by the way, I'm also competing against FEMA and the federal government. Oh, my God. Um, you know, wow. that is – it's outrageous. It's outrageous. The whole purpose of a federal national stockpile uh, is that they would organize the whole purpose of a defense production act is that when there is an emergency, when there is a war, and this is a war against this virus, that the federal government will act on behalf of all of the states and on behalf of all the people of the United States to, to, to obtain what we need. We could have put people to work in the United States making PPE. If he had invoked the defense production act, we could have put, uh, 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 goods into the hands of the governors and the and the communities all across the state that are that are uh, uh, desperate for PPE by now, but none of that was done, and I think now he's just looking for people to blame. And so, is it too late for him to re- reverse course, you know, and actually take charge here? And you know, it seems like he could have done it a week ago when the complaints started, and he started to see that. There's a lot of vocal people out there, all the governors, and he's saying, oh, you should stop whining and just, you know, you're, it's your failure, not mine, right? He's trying to put it on. Have you ever heard the president take responsibility for any mistake? Um, no, the answer no, no, he explicitly said he doesn't. Yeah, no. <laughs> right. And, and he has made many mistakes. And look, everybody makes mistakes, even in leadership, even even in public People make mistakes. I, you know, I think the most important thing that you can do as a leader is to own up to it and overcome, you know, whatever challenge it is that you may have created by virtue of a mistake. And uh, he just is incapable of doing that. You asked me if I'd spoken with him. Um, yes, of course I have. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I reached out to him and, you know, expressed to him uh, my hope that he would invoke the Defense Production Act. Uh, in a much more widespread way uh, to, to, to manufacture ventilators and PPE in the United States. Um, you know, this was weeks ago, um, and uh, he still had not done any of that. And, uh, and, you know, at the same time, in that call, he promised the delivery of certain items or that he would work on delivering certain items and then the White House called back a little later saying they're going to deliver something, and then they delivered the wrong thing. They, you know, they promised us mm-hmm. 300,000 N95 masks, and we got 300,000 surgical masks. Um, they did promise us 300 Jesus. ventilators, which we got, and they were operational, unlike the ones that went to California. But we had to go check every one of them because we understood, you know, that, that the ones that went to California were broken. Um and uh, so, you know, we've just got to a point where we can't rely upon the promises of the president. Um, but I at the same time, and it's very confusing, I think, for the public to understand the difference. You know, while I am critical when, you know, when people make promises and don't deliver like the president has, um, I am happy to praise whenever people are delivering what they promise, whenever they're helping us in any way. And I have done that about the federal government. Uh, there are a lot of people who are doing amazing work 
to help us here in Illinois. And as we reach our peak over the next few weeks, we're going to need all of them to be pulling for us. Yeah. Have you, uh, you know, the next sort of phase of this is you can start to see uh, messaging coming from the White House and some of the conservative uh, media that they would like to, you know, stop the social distancing and get people back to work. And, you know, we've got this April 30th deadline, but everybody's at a different phase um, of their, you know, curve. Uh, New York's at a different phase in Chicago, right? Do you see, what do you think of, um, you know, this this promise that we're going to, you know, get back to work soon, conquer the invisible enemy, and the economy is going to boom again, you know, in a short time? Does that seem realistic from your vantage? Look, we all want that. We all want that. Yeah. Um, but in order to do that, you need three things. You need to test, you need to trace, and you need to treat. We have to have much more widespread testing available. And we're right. all struggling to get enough testing now uh, just to, to, to make sure that we're able to do surveillance in all the communities we want to. Um, you know, we need, we need to trace when we uh, detect somebody as a COVID positive. We need to be able to contact trace so that all the people they came in contact with over the prior 14 days, for example, um, that, that they you know, that, that we're able to contact them and have them self-isolate uh, or seek treatment. Um, and then finally, we need a treatment, something that can reduce the symptoms, can, can keep people from entering the hospital perhaps, or if they do enter the hospital, keep them away from an ICU bed or a ventilator. And uh, right. in all three of those areas, we are not nearly where we need to be. Now, I don't want people to be pessimistic. We have some amazing medical research that's happening in the United States and all over the world right now uh, that, that is looking into certain kinds of, of drugs uh, that, that may work. Remdesivir, remdesivir by Gilead looks like it might be promising. Uh, you know, and there are others. You've heard the president talk about hydrochloroquine. I don't know uh, of any studies yet that have shown that to be effective, but I know that there are uh, trials of that as well as remdesivir going on in Chicago as well as across the nation and the world. Uh, so we, you know, having a treatment is going to be hugely important because if we don't and you start to, to reopen, you know, things in the economy um, uh, and then we have another wave, you know, again, we'll be dealing with, you know, the overwhelming of our uh, health care systems. Right. So, you know, you've been uh, pretty vocal about uh, the way this is impacting African-American community in, your, in Chicago specifically in an outsized way, as I understand it. Trump in the last year has made some, you know, designs on sort of courting the African-American vote. And, uh, you know, and now we're in a situation where he could have, you know, done the Defense Protection Act kind of, you know, turn this into a political asset, and instead it's kind of reversed itself. I mean, do you think, you know, what kind of message do you think he has sent to those communities, uh, especially right there in your state in Chicago, in the city of Chicago? Well, let me start by saying that the failures of the White House, of the president, um, have visited, um, you know, greater illness and greater, uh, you know, number of deaths across the country, the, the lateness of the reaction and so on, um, the, the, the outsized impact 
the disproportionate impact on the African-American community is a function of decades, in fact, centuries of disinvestment, underinvestment in those communities and in particular in their healthcare systems, um, such that there's a much higher incidence in the black community of, uh, of uh, you know, hypertension, of diabetes and, and other underlying conditions, which as it happens, COVID-19 takes advantage of and, uh, you know, ravages uh, people who, uh, you know, who, who, you know, become COVID positive. And so uh, this is a problem that can't be fixed overnight. Um, this we're talking about, you know, uh, doctors and 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 uh, funding and and facilities and hospitals and so on that haven't been, uh, you know, made available in black communities and and in communities that are experiencing extreme poverty. Um, so, you know, that includes rural communities. So, you know, and where there are, you know, many poor white people. Um, so uh, but right. the, the problem in the African-American community is particularly acute because um, many of those communities are within large cities where there is a you know, rampant transmission uh, of COVID-19. And so, um, you know, we've seen just terrible outcomes. So the, the, the thing that we need to do, all of us, in reaction to this understanding is to make sure that we're doubling down on staying at home. We've got to prevent people who already have underlying conditions from getting COVID-19. And that's the right. most important thing we can do. I mean, the next most important thing is to make sure that we're detecting people who have it as early as possible. So testing, testing, testing. Um, and right. I'm, 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 I'm committed to, you know, I've been, focused on testing from very early on, very frustrated by what the federal government hasn't done in this regard. And we've invested significant amounts of money now to expand in-state, within our own state laboratories, as well as within our hospitals, the capability to do the testing that doesn't seem to be done well by the federal government. They're sending it to national labs, which are overrun, and it takes 10 days to get a result. You know, you could, you could be on a ventilator by the time you get a result of your test. Um, so I mean, yeah, I've we, seen that. I have friends in Chicago dealing with that right now who've been tested. It's been 10, 11, 12 days and they haven't gotten their test back. You know, they've had fevers for two weeks and you know, you're, you're thinking about trying to test across the entire expanse of the state. It just seems mind boggling as a bureaucratic effort. It, it's, it is, it's shocking to be frank with you that the federal government placed all of its eggs in that basket. Um, and instead what they should have done is, they should have gone to all of the hospitals that have the capability to do testing and helped them build out their capability within all of the states. Uh, and they should have gone to the state labs and helped us build out our capability. Instead, look, we're doing it ourselves, which is, you know, I, I've, I've given up on relying upon the federal government here. Um, I, we, right. we have to get this done on our own. And I'll take any help I can get from the federal government. I'm not turning it away. And, and you know, my, my, my criticism will turn into praise uh, when they deliver on their promises. But in the meantime, uh, I, I have to do what I have to do to protect the African-American community in right. my state and, and our, you know, the, the overall population of health and safety. Have you talked to uh, – you endorsed Joe Biden um, earlier this year. Have you talked to him in recent days or weeks? I haven't. I haven't had time to uh, 
to 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 have a call like that. I haven't actually haven't made any political calls in quite quite a long time. I just to give you an idea, and I know you didn't ask this, but you know we're uh, yesterday I counted up the number of days that my staff and I have worked uh, in the office without a day off, and it's now up to 32. Um, wow. And you know, and and we're not, you know, we just don't have any time to 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 deal with politics. I mean, everything is about every minute of the day. Like, can we save lives or can we keep people from getting sick? Right. I just, you know, in I, you know, in, as a, a matter of speculative, you know, theorizing, I, I imagine. Well, what if Joe Biden was the president? You know, it would make a difference to have a, uh, you know, a leader in the White House who had a plan, right? And that given that there is no top-down plan, it is this catch-as-catch-can, state-by-state thing, and you can't coordinate, really, across the country in a way that might be useful otherwise. Don't you agree? Well, what a blessing it would be if we had a real leader in the White House. But instead, governors have stepped up to lead. Uh, and, you know, I talk to my fellow governors frequently. You know, we've worked together, many of us. We've shared ideas with one another. Uh, and, you know, here in Illinois, um, you know, I've tried to set a path for us to, uh, to, to move toward, you know, testing, expanding healthcare capability, uh, and, you know, overall, everything that we need to do to keep people healthy and safe. That's, that is the job that I'm trying to fulfill on. Um, it's more challenging because there's uh, so little leadership from Washington, but, uh, but that's my job. Have you talked to other Republican governors who are, you know, otherwise allies with Donald Trump? I mean, it, yeah. many of them are probably going through the same thing, I imagine. Yes. And I speak to Republican governors uh, almost as often as I speak to Democratic governors. Um, and um, and yes, they're all experiencing the same thing. I mean, we all have the same problems. It, it is it is, you know, the uh, supplies, you know, PPE and ventilators, it's testing, um, and it's messaging. That is also an enormous challenge. Uh, we're getting, you know, the messaging right. out of the White House for so many weeks of this was, you know, this is not a problem, uh, or right. this is much less a problem than people are making it out to be. Um, and there was, you know, very little messaging out of the uh, CDC suggesting that you know, we should close schools, you know, close bars and restaurants. All the things that we did here in Illinois, we were among the very first states in the country. I was the second state to uh, issue a stay-at-home order. Uh, we were one of the early states to limit gatherings, uh, bars and restaurants closings, school closings. Um, you know, we, 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 we've made every move, and it's been ahead of the CDC guidance um, and ahead of uh, the White House by far. And uh, I'm glad of that. And I think that will show in the end to have been a, uh, you know, a, a, a very positive move. Um, but I would have liked to have had the uh, a more forceful leadership in messaging from uh, the federal government, because it would have made all of this much easier. Remember, I am in a state that is surrounded by, you know, I'm surrounded by, um, States like Iowa and Missouri, Iowa still doesn't have a stay-at-home order. Uh, Missouri, you know, finally closed their schools and then put a stay-at-home order in uh, kind of more recently. Um, and, 
those are, you know, that's a big portion of, of the border on one side of my state. Um, right. So, you know, and we have obviously um, we have, a, uh, you know, we can be ahead uh, in making all these decisions. But, you know, look at I'll tell you one place to look is 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 Metro East, which is East St. Louis in Illinois and Belleville mm-hmm. and that area of our state, which is across the river from uh, St. Louis. And uh, what do you know? We have a hot spot precisely in the two counties that are right there near St. Louis. And, um, and, you know, it, it, I, you know, it's partly because it's somewhat urban, um, but it's also partly because uh, there were no orders put in place in Missouri as early as we put our orders in place. And so again, federal leadership yeah. would have made all the difference. Right. Wow. So I know this is, uh, you know, you haven't thought too much about the politics yet, but you know, and, and I think that's the big question mark right now. We don't know what's going to transpire with the economy, when we're going to be able to move out of this. Everybody kind of wants to know, but nobody can know, it seems like, until we you know, have uh, better systems in place to deal with it. But um, do you see what's happening uh, in, the, in the lack of federal leadership as having a political impact on Trump for this election? I, I can't help but think that, that people will understand that it, leadership matters in the White House and that that will make a difference in November. Um, you know, so I, that's my, my view. And I think that um, the failures uh, are so evident to me. Uh, but I'm sometimes bewildered that there are people out there uh, that want to be critical of governors who are leading uh, and that want to parrot things that the White House says, even though they're inaccurate. And so I'm, you know, I'm always right. amazed at the number of people who take that position. All right, well, that's the world we're living in right now, which is the kind of amazing part about it. Is you know, his um, lock hold on a certain portion of the media and a certain portion of the population, as you said, uh, it's not helpful. Some of them never have believed in this to begin with, right? And so that's a problem. But, um, you know, you said you talked to uh, Trump a few weeks ago, right? Um, sort of at at the outset of this thing. Is that right? No, it was more, I think it was probably two weeks. Ago. Listen, every day seems like about three months. So, yeah. Um, yeah. so yeah. It, I think it was, I think it probably two weeks ago um, that I spoke with him, uh, you know, last. So, uh, and, and that's not too, I'm, I'm not including that we have governor's calls with all the governors on it with, with president Trump and vice president. Right. Pence, uh, and we, you know, we're able to ask questions on those calls. Uh, but, but no, in terms of one-on-one conversation, I've spoken with the vice president many times. Um, but you right. asked about Trump, and I've I've spoken with him. Well, he's once. yeah, and he's he's been the point man, right? I mean, Pence has been the uh, Trump's point man on a lot of this, and um, seems like uh, maybe an easier person to deal with uh, and, just on pragmatic former, issues. He's a former governor of a neighboring state of mine, and um, so you know, I think he understands the challenges that governors go through. So I, he's been. Uh, right. You know, he's been uh, he, he's been readily available. I, I, you know, whenever I needed to talk to him, I've gotten a call back or he's, you know, or I've directly been able to reach him. And um, so, you know, that's great. I, I, I think, unfortunately, you know, he he is um, he often has to, you know, he is towing the line of 
the administration, right. you know, whatever that may be at the time. But but I think he at least understands, empathizes, and and wants to be helpful if he can be. Yeah. Uh, Governor, thanks so much for your time. My last question is um, really simple. If you could get him on the phone today, what would you say to him? What would you say to Donald Trump right now? What could you say to him right now? Well, I would implore Donald Trump to, first of all, invoke the Defense Production Act in a way that will organize the market so that we can get the goods uh, that we need, the PPE, the incubator, I mean, the ventilators that we need, um, all of the, the, the uh, things that will help us save people's lives. That's, that's, that's certainly one thing. A second thing that I would uh, implore him to do is to um, provide leadership to all of the states. He is the president of the United States. And so uh, the leadership that we need is leadership in messaging to the people of our country uh, that they need to stay indoors, that they need to stay at home, that we will get through this and that uh, we have, uh, you know, that every state needs to comply with this um, and, um, you know, and that we we will only begin to reopen things when we are, you know, testing, tracing, and treating uh, so that we can keep people safe. Yeah. Um, Governor, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. And um, hope to talk to you again up the road. But um, good luck with everything that you're dealing with. And uh, um, I wish you the best of luck. Thanks, Joe. Nice to talk to you. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) Next up, my guest is Sarah Fryer, the author of No Filter, the inside story of Instagram. I'm very, very, very excited today to have uh, a guest I've been waiting to have on for a long time because you've been working on this book for well, as most people do for for years now, but I have been so excited for it to finally come out. It's an incredible book. It's called No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram. Sarah Fryer, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So Sarah is a reporter with Bloomberg News based in San Francisco, uh, and we've known each other for a long time covering the same world. Um, And we are going to talk about her book today. We're going to talk a little bit about coronavirus. We're going to talk about Instagram and Facebook and the tech world and all these different things that are happening. Um, And so I want to jump in uh, topically for a moment um, to talk a little bit about what, what exactly, how is 
coronavirus and what's taking place globally, how is it affecting uh, services like Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and places like that? Well, the, the biggest effect on these services is that people are using them a whole lot more. Facebook, Instagram, Messenger, WhatsApp, the company says those services are all reaching peaks that they only otherwise see on like New Year's Eve. They're hitting records and people are spending a lot of their time there because you know, these products are actually necessary for us now in order to stay in contact with people that we can't see in person. So they're in some ways achieving their real purpose and uh, people are using a lot more live video. They're using a lot more messaging. Um, live video has about doubled in some places and messaging is up 50%. And that means that we all have to think a lot more about how these products came to be so powerful and so integrated into our lives. And that's a lot of what I've tried to achieve in my reporting. When you say is, you know, one of the things that is happening out in the real world as a result of, well, let me back up for a second. One of the things that has happened in the real world pre-coronavirus is the effect that Instagram has had on society in ways that no other platform really has. Like, you know, Facebook has kind of changed the way we connect in a digital world and Twitter has changed the way we consume and create news and so on. But Instagram has kind of changed the way food, and you're going to talk about this, where, you know, I want to really get into this, but it's great, changed the way we um, we go on vacations. It's changed the way we we make our our dinner at night or where we eat and all these different things. In And what's happening with coronavirus, it's so fascinating. I mean, just in LA in the last week, there's a couple of very famous restaurants, the Pikey uh, Swingers from the movie, that have shut down permanently now because of the effects on coronavirus. And so the question I have is when you look at the way that these services are being used now, um, you know, is is this going to be an everlasting thing that is changing the way that they are used in general? Or is this just kind of a moment in time as we go through this terrible experience and it will go back to, to normal full of influencers and people taking pictures of the most beautiful pictures of their food and so on and so forth? I I really think that Instagram, as you mentioned, has primed us as a society to really value experiences, the, the kind of food you can take a picture of, a vacation that you can share with your followers and, and get that social reward of, of that validation. And in some ways, what's happening with coronavirus is hitting hardest at the economy that Instagram primed, this experience-based economy. Millennials are more likely to spend their money on travel now than they are on a, on a big purchase like a car uh, or even some material objects. And so yeah, it's going to it's going to really hurt the people who rely the most on that and you know resorts that have made themselves Instagram perfect, restaurants that are relying on the clientele that's willing to pay up for that kind of experience. Um but I do think that it's it's so ingrained in our culture now and we're even seeing it in quarantine, people are finding ways to show off visually as much as they can, whether that's their workout or, you know, in in uh, in some cases, bread baking. I know you've gotten into that, but that's been a huge <laughs> trend on Instagram. And and so I, I think that that we are now this is what we value. And although although it, this part of our culture has been has been a you know hurt by this 
public health crisis, I think that we're finding different ways to tell stories. One thing I think that is really going to change is this kind of peacocking on Instagram, uh, the the reality being so much more polished than it actually is. Uh, I've seen a lot of influencers stop pretending that they're still traveling because they're not, <laughs> you know, for, for the first couple of <laughs> weeks, for the first couple of weeks of coronavirus hitting hitting Europe and hitting the US, I talked with a bunch of travel influencers who were still basically in denial that this would change what their content was going to look like. And they were still posting beautiful pictures from places they'd been. And some of those pictures were actually from things that had happened months before or years before. They were just posting them as if they were currently there, even though they were sheltering at home or canceling their flights or having a lot of brand deals fall through. They weren't talking about that publicly. And I I think that people are realizing they can't be disingenuous like that anymore. I just talked with a bunch of influencers today who said that they're trying to be more open with their followers about what they're going through, um, but also try to like redirect their attention to the businesses that are hurt. One thing that to back up a little bit um, with your book that I'd love to chat about is um, Instagram was kind of essentially started as an accident. Um, It was an offshoot for another product and has quickly become one of the most talked about platforms on earth. Um, you know, I don't think people, uh, I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I don't think you have a segment of society that, that uses Instagram where there's so many overlaps, like, you know, on Facebook, it's a lot of older people that, that use it on Twitter. It's a lot of media folks that use it on Instagram. It's kind of a little bit of every, everyone. And yet in the beginning of the, of, you know, with the acquisition of the company and so on, um, it's you know, it's be kind of become rife in culture and in Facebook. Uh, there's, you know, it's created problems everywhere uh, as much as it's created good things too. And you had um, an excerpt in uh, in the magazine um, about this particularly with Zuckerberg and um, Instagram's co-founder, Kevin Systrom. Can you tell us a little bit about the history here and kind of how this this company essentially went from nothing to being pretty much everything and how it also kind of drove a division between between Mark Zuckerberg and and the guys who founded it. Well, Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger, the founders of Instagram, had a very different vision for how to build a social network, uh, whereas Facebook was all about growth and trying to serve as many people as possible with every tweak, uh, the Instagram founders were much more focused on on highlighting creativity, highlighting expertise, the people who could really stand out. They actually had an editorial strategy, which is not something that we think of of Facebook or Twitter having, um, they would highlight their favorite users on the at Instagram account, which to this day still has more followers than any celebrity. And they were really trying to, to paint a picture of this is what we want you to be doing. We want you to be going out and having these beautiful experiences. We want you to be giving us a window into your life. And in the beginning that, that was, a you know, this, this, incredible opportunity for people. They had never really had this this reason to take photography seriously. Uh, 
and people were going around and photographing everything that they experienced, over time, once you once people realized that having a following on Instagram could be lucrative and you know, you're really building that audience that brands can then speak to, the performance on Instagram became a lot more strategic. And within Facebook, there was this tension between Instagram's individualized product growth and careful attention to detail in building that product, not trying to change too much technically for fear of alienating people. Um, And Facebook's real push to to drive growth. I mean, Facebook wanted Instagram to put on more notifications. They want them, they wanted them to push harder into advertising and not be so precious about how they did it. Just, you know, try something and see if it works and then tweak it later, which is a very Facebook way of working. Well, Instagram stuck to its guns and eventually did uh, end up building this mass market product by doing things their own way. And once they got to the point where they were on route to 1 billion users, Zuckerberg started to look at their success as a threat to Facebook's continued dominance and started to restrict Instagram's resources. And and now Instagram is looking more like Facebook than it ever has. They've adopted a lot of those strategies that they were so hesitant to adopt. One thing that that's kind of always been confusing to me about that part of the story is that, you know, I, I think that when I look at someone like Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos, um, they are, and I'm not talking about these people in a positive way, I'm just talking about them in a factual business-like way. One thing that I think has always been admired by the business world um, is that they were willing to to purchase or create or you know or kill things that were either going like they would purchase a company or they would create a new product um that would essentially eliminate something that was probably you know in their best interest or kill uh, kill a segment of their business uh that was going to do really well if it competed with something else for example of course um you know the iPod was one of the biggest aspects of Apple's business, and they created the iPhone, which essentially made the iPod almost irrelevant and obsolete, and was going to and eventually did. And And I've always felt like with Zuckerberg, he has kind of been not, he's not willing to do that to sacrifice Facebook, because Facebook is everything and all things to him, but he has always been kind of at the forefront of understanding what the next thing is in society that consumers would be obsessed with. Um, you know, VR is still to be determined, but he did it with WhatsApp and he did it with Instagram. And yet at the same time, he is jealous almost of these things that are competing with Facebook. But why does it, for someone who if the goal is just to win, which is what it seems like it is to Zuckerberg, and correct me if I'm wrong here, why is he jealous of a platform that he owns even if it's growing exponentially like Instagram was at the time. It goes against his own philosophy that he puts in Facebook's employee handbook. I mean, he says that if we don't create the product that kills us, someone else will. Technology products don't have the uh, the ability to leave ruins. They simply die. And so he he really pounds that into his employee base and urges them to to create things that will 
uh, maybe kill the things that they already have. But when it came to Instagram, he thought that basically Facebook had spent so many years directing attention from Facebook to Instagram, a, a portion of it, right? Whenever you would post a photo to Instagram that would cross post to Facebook, Facebook would have uh, appended a link back to Instagram. So that was really great advertising for Instagram and growing its user base. And they also had it in their menu of options for people to go to. They also gave Instagram some house advertising. And eventually he started to feel, he started to feel like as Facebook got, got embroiled in all of these public crises, he started to feel like maybe Instagram was eating Facebook's lunch, that this this growth in original content and in attention um, could be spent on Facebook, which, which if you're looking at the revenue, Facebook is a more lucrative place for users to spend their time than Instagram because it has a more mature advertising platform. But honestly, I mean, he made it a data-based argument, but from what I've heard from my sources, it played out as an emotional decision. I didn't realize he was an emotional character. <laughs> well, emotional about dominance, like <laughs> and, dominance yeah. and winning and being better yeah. than anyone else. You, One of the stories in your book that I find fascinating and infuriating and, um, uh, and you know, couldn't, couldn't stop reading about was um, the acquisition of uh, Instagram um, by Facebook, there was, you know, there was some stuff that I've reported on that, uh, where Twitter was going to buy them. Um, and, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, of course, won that. And then there was moments where, you know, Kevin Systrom didn't give people, uh, the stocks that, that many people said they deserved. Um, tell us a little bit about that story. So Facebook's acquisition of Instagram happened, over a whirlwind weekend. It was Easter weekend of 2012. Zuckerberg had heard that that Instagram was raising a new round of funding and was interested in, in locking down the ability to own them before Twitter did. And Twitter had already been trying to purchase Instagram, um, but wasn't getting very far. They weren't very ag- aggressive about their strategy in that they had they had multiple meetings with with Kevin and Mike but they never presented a package to them that they really wanted to consider the most important this is Twitter par- you're saying Twitter yes the most just important to, just part before, of it before you get to the next part just set the stage for listeners for where we are like is it how many users there's like 12 employees how many people are on Instagram like how important is it okay so in 2012 Facebook and Twitter were the two giants. Nobody really knew which one was going to be bigger. And um, Instagram had only about 25,000, sorry, 25 million users. And they had no business model and had only 13 employees. But what you could what you could notice if you were somebody who really deeply followed social media, they had the network effects. They were growing faster than any of the other platforms. They were getting a lot of attention. Um, you know, Obama was using Instagram. It was it was the the hype product of the moment, and some might argue still is. And um, that was enough to get people at Twitter to think, well, this is the main the main tool that people are using to post photos on Twitter because at the time that functionality worked. 
so maybe we should buy them because then then we can integrate it with Twitter and, and make our photos better and we can still keep Instagram. Um, but maybe Kevin will want to be head of product at Twitter. It was just kind of a messy proposition. Um, and in Zuckerberg, knowing what he knows about entrepreneurs, Zuckerberg had just a few years earlier turned down an offer from Yahoo, which wanted to buy his company for a billion dollars. And he almost did it, but then he didn't. And that really taught him about what he would want to, what he would have wanted to hear if he were in the same position and um, trying to convince someone to join Facebook. So what he offered Kevin and Mike was independence. You know, they could come to Facebook. They could have none of the, none of the risk of being an independent company. Remember, Instagram only had a dozen employees, so it was really tough for them to deal with this rapid growth. And, um, and they could come into Facebook and they could have all the operational resources and and they wouldn't have that uncertainty about whether Instagram was going to die. And they wouldn't have to work on the Facebook product at all. And so that sounded great. And what sounded even better was that Zuckerberg was willing to offer a billion dollars, which nobody had paid for a mobile app ever before. That was an absolutely crazy number for a product with a tiny number of employees and no revenue, no business models to speak of. But again, Zuckerberg understood those network effects. He understood that if people are joining this thing rapidly, it's going to get rapidly more expensive for Facebook to acquire. And Facebook was just about to go public. They had no mobile strategy. To, I mean, they were just starting to come up with what their strategy for mobile phones was going to be. They were really more of a desktop product. And Instagram was built for phones first. Um, so they got together over the weekend, Zuckerberg, um, chucks some meat on the barbecue. They sat back with their beers and, and negotiated over the stock portion versus cash portion and signed it all before Game of Thrones. So when the, I love the, the Game of Thrones part, it never gets old to me. Uh, when this happens, the, the there are some employees that don't actually end up getting any money and as someone who has written about this and has known some of these people it's kind of it's a little shocking to me um is it shocking to you is it shocking to to kevin in hindsight is it you know how do people feel about that now it's a billion dollars you know if i if i sold a a a book for a billion dollars i'd be like handing out million dollars to like my my friends you know it'd be million dollar bills to my friends um Tell us a little bit about that and and how people around him felt and 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 Kevin today. The way the founders were thinking about that uh, was we have this amount of stock from Facebook that can be reapportioned to our employees. We're going to focus on the employees that have been with us for the longest amount of time and and actually vested some stock. As as you know, in Silicon Valley, it it takes time to actually solidify your ownership in in the equity portion of your compensation. It takes a few quarters to make it happen. And so most of the Instagram staff had only been working there for a few months. And so they thought that it wasn't really 
really fair to take some share of equity that would have gone to those employees and give it to these people who, those, you know, founding employees and give it to these people who had worked there a little bit less time. Obviously, that is not how the employees saw it because Mike and Kevin got hundreds of millions of dollars each. Kevin got about uh, about 400 million. Mikey got about uh, 100 million. And, and they could have just gifted some of it to to their employees if they wanted to, or at least that's how the employees interpreted it. So there was a lot of ill will because what these what these people who I spoke with for the book are thinking even today, if Kevin and Mike had given us just a portion of their winnings from the deal, we wouldn't still have to be paying rent on our apartments. Maybe we would have founded the next Instagram. Maybe we would have done um, something like, you know, the, the early PayPal mafia or the people who were early at Google and they never got the opportunity to do that. So it was very painful. So, but what does this say about their character? I mean, you know, there are people that you talk to in the book and, um, and, you know, I mean, people like these guys, you know, they, they liked working for them, um, uh, but at the same time, I have a hard time understanding how if you're getting a hundred million dollars or four hundred million dollars and you don't even give an employee, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars or whatever, even tens of thousands of dollars, it just seems it just seems crazy to me. It, it, uh, are Kevin and Mike good guys? Are they? Uh, you know, did did the money and the power go to their head? They were good guys, and they changed. Like, what 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 is it about these guys that that can justify that? Because I know I I know some of the people who worked there in the early days, and they they literally like live in rented departments. They don't even own like a small little house. They it's like, you know, they um they have a lot of resentments around what happened. Um, uh, and and not only was you know it wasn't just four hundred million in stock that Kevin got, but it was you know it was stock and the the value of Facebook it can be hundreds of billions um, depending on what the markets are doing today. You know it's really it's puzzling to me too because it seems like something that could have been so easily avoided this this ill will. Um, with people who helped build the early product. And and yeah, Kevin and Mike are extremely personable. They're very likable. Um, you've met them. I mean, they they are, you know, good supporters of arts communities and, you know, really good at at networking and they've met all the celebrities. And um, I, I think that that there must have just been what what i hear today is that they didn't they didn't know how things worked which is not really an excuse but they they're like this is not how things are done you can't just like gift somebody money which of course i think you can it would be legally complicated <laughs> but yeah. you could so yeah that's it's a big mystery to me too but i, I do think that um there is a reverence in silicon valley for being the founder being the one who's the visionary and the people who didn't get payouts, I mean, these people are working in in less uh, less close to the top jobs, like customer service and um, you know dealing with the the horrible stuff that comes on to Instagram and taking it down rapidly and um, you know engineering and and I I think that 
that those jobs are just have just never been as revered in Silicon Valley as the ones like you know building the product, building the user interface and uh and keeping the servers up and and doing all those things that that actually to someone in technology seem more relevant for the future of of um of Instagram. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You talk a lot about in the book about Snapchat and the growth of Snapchat and how it was going to be something that was going to kind of um you know eclipse Instagram and Facebook and and the the role in which Zuckerberg kind of stepped in to make sure that that didn't happen. Um, and it's, you know, Snapchat is still around. A lot of people thought after Zuckerberg decided to do what he was going to do that, that um, and, and System 2, of course, but like after they copied uh, the platform that it would, it would die and it hasn't. And, and I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, what your thoughts, what you how you think this is going to kind of play out in the future so uh, we you've covered these tech companies for a long time and they they have a life right um they have a, a moment of fame twitter arguably had two moments of fame and i think that's largely because of donald trump and <laughs> will be very very interesting to see what happens to twitter if or should i say i should say if and or when trump uh, leaves office he may be there forever but um uh because i don't think that i think that one thing that's going to happen with twitter and i want to talk a little bit about dorsey and twitter and he gave money this week and uh, i want to get into that but um you know i think that the next president of the united states is going to try to separate themselves from the way that that trump has um uh organized you know his white house and and so on and so i don't think that he will uh, whoever he or she is will be uh, using Twitter to reach the masses and so on. But I do think that um, these platforms have a life and Facebook had its time. Instagram arguably still has its time. Um, um, but do you think that that Zuckerberg, uh, you know, under Zuckerberg, um, because he is the one CEO, that's it. There's only one CEO there, as you've written, that Instagram can continue to be the place. And 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 if not, is it going to have to be another acquisition of some other social network in order to keep the keep everything growing? Or does it is it just more more stealing of, of ideas and and things from other platforms that are doing really well, like TikTok and so on? I don't know if Facebook can make another major social media company acquisition without coming under tremendous scrutiny. I mean, they're already under FTC investigation, DOJ investigation, investigation by 47 state attorneys general. Uh, The opportunity with Instagram, uh, which they may still have, is to have a, a second coming, but they're deciding to make it very Facebooky, and they're deciding to commercialize. I mean, in some ways, Instagram already commercialized itself just through the way our culture has responded to it. But they're leaning into that. They're they're doing a a big e commerce push so that people can buy products directly through Instagram. Um, the early employees that you and I know have have said that you know to them it's so sad to see Instagram become a mall. And then when I meet with 
Instagram employees today, they say, you know what? We're really excited about turning Instagram into a mall because we feel like malls are social places to hang out and you don't have to buy anything, but you know, it's, you can go there with your friends and check things out. So it, the philosophy has really shifted. So I don't, I don't know. Um, we also don't have as much visibility into how Instagram is operating under Facebook now. Zuckerberg hasn't, or Instagram hasn't released a user number since 2018 when the founders were still there, when they announced they had 1 billion users. We're going to see it blend a lot more in with Facebook on the messaging side, on um, Instagram story side. And so I, I think that Facebook's plan for the future as opposed to acquiring up a bunch of apps because the government probably wouldn't allow that to occur, um, they're going to try to turn Facebook into a mega network, drawing from the, the success, not just of Facebook, but also Instagram, WhatsApp, Messenger, and tie it all together behind the scenes so that people can have a bigger community to, to interact with. And, um, you know, that's that's something that's been really controversial at Facebook. Uh, Chris Cox, the second in command on product for so many years, one of the close confidants of Zuckerberg, he's le he left in part because he didn't agree with the strategy. And so um, I, I think we're going to we're going to see a, a different era of Facebook. And it's also going to be more focused on encrypted communication. Um, so what that means is even Facebook won't be able to see what people are sending to each other on messaging. And to me, that indicates that the company is confident that its network is, is already big enough to glean enough data about all of its users, so much so that they can afford to not have visibility into some of the user activity. And and the benefit of that is that they won't have to police it because they simply will be able to see it. Mm. One thing that is really interesting as you talk about all of those cases that are up against Facebook um, and Zuckerberg uh, around the country, it's kind of astounding when you think about the numbers, is, you know, when we look back at the election 2016, you know, I remember it's it, it was I, it probably will be the equivalent of of. Uh, Trump's calling coronavirus a hoax, you know, um, you know, Zuckerberg just said it was ludicrous that that uh, Facebook could have played a role in the election. As we enter the election cycle today, um, you know, we're we're a few months away from from going to the polls and and who knows if we'll even go there or mail in our ballots or maybe, you know, who knows what will happen. But I, I wonder if um, Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp have actually done things to try to stop um, what happened before? Because everything I've read and everything I've seen uh, goes kind of against that, 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 you know, there was a great article in The Atlantic about uh, a reporter who, who signed up for a new Facebook account and all they did was like uh, the, um, you know, Trump for America uh, campaign page, and next thing they knew, like every ad they saw, every news article, everything was just this. It was just insanity, and it feels like you know I I have seen a lot of the hoaxes that have been sent around um, on social networks. I see them on on Instagram too. People taking screenshots of 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 things that the the World Health Organization tells you to do, like gargle with salt water and things like that, that are just completely BS um, to to beat coronavirus. 
is Facebook now taking this seriously? And is Instagram, you know, under its new quote unquote leadership, um, is it something that they are actually trying to stop? Or is it like they're just doing enough because they're just going to show that they're doing something? What's actually happening there? So two things. First of all, uh, Facebook, Zuckerberg himself, uh, especially, has been promoting this idea that they are a place for free speech. And so no matter what people want to say about the candidates, as long as they are saying it as real people or real organizations, as opposed to Russian bots, that's fine. Um, and political candidates can say they can lie to users if they want to, and that's fine. Um, so they're very narrowly defining what they what they feel is harmful and only taking action on that only after people pointed out whether that's, um, you know, people who are seeing the content and reporting it, which, as we know, if you are the person who's immersed in that world, you might not think that anything is wrong. Um, and they have their fact checkers. The second thing that is is pertinent to today, Facebook says that they are strapped for resources right now because of coronavirus. Their contractors who are, who are they have 15,000 contractors that go through all the content that gets reported by users as, as harmful or, or um, hate speech or whatever it may be. Those people, some of them can't work on these problems from home because of legal issues mm. or privacy issues. And so Zuckerberg has come out and said, we may not find some of those, some of those things that aren't as, as glaring because we are focused on dealing with the coronavirus issue because the, the burden of all of the misinformation about coronavirus, all this health-based misinformation is so strong that we need to divert, even have full-time employees start to work on taking that down. And as you mentioned, they're not doing that in a foolproof way, but they're certainly trying uh, more in that department than they are in elections right now. Do you believe, you know, one of the things I find so fascinating is when you look at the, the what you can do on Facebook or Instagram, you can, you know, you can, or Google even, um, I can like target an ad to pretty much any kind of person, place, or, you know, on the planet. I can say someone who likes to ride bicycles on Tuesday afternoons and has curly, I mean, not these specific things, but it's, it's incredibly granular what you can do with advertising. And it's why, it's why these companies are worth so much money. Um, and, you know, I remember doing some, some ads around uh, some book stuff that I did a couple of years ago and just kind of being shocked at who are the kinds of people I could target, like based on what they'd already read or what they'd already watched and where they lived and what time they were on the platforms and all these things. And it feels to me that, that, that places like Facebook and Instagram and, and Google and other platforms have put in so much time and effort to allow that. And they have, it's a science. Um, and yet if they put in the same amount of time and effort, wouldn't they be able to defeat these kinds of misinformation networks that are on the platforms? Is it really that hard? If, you know, it's like if you had said to me, or if I said to you 10 years ago, before all these platforms were really like a well, well-known platforms, oh, um, I could either stop fake news from spreading on this platform or I could create this targeted advertising. I would say the stopping the fake news would be easier. 
is there something I'm missing that that is it? Do they really? Is it really that hard for fifteen thousand uh, programmers and product people to figure this out, or is it just not that important? You need to think about the incentives, right? I mean, building targeted advertising—that's that's something that if you're a product manager at Facebook, that's going to be great for your for your KPIs and your performance reviews. You'll probably get a, a great promotion for making that just a little bit better. If you're somebody working on taking down bad things on Facebook, even if you're building products to do it or you're building the machine learning, how do you measure the absence of something? How do you, you know, really goal against that if you are in a, a ultra measurement based company like Facebook? And and I think that they that it's it's not fun to work on those teams. It's you don't get as big a bonus if you uh quash the latest round of, of, you know, World Health Organization memes that are false. Um, and, and so I, I think that it's just naturally baked into the incentives of the organization to have that kind of stuff matter less, even as the company is saying that it matters more. At the, at the individual level, if you're a Facebook employee working on these problems, What's going to get you, where are your smartest people going to work? What are they going to work on? And and what are they going to get excited about? Uh, that's something that I've heard from my sources as being a, a frustrating proposition. Um, making sure that you have enough resources for those teams, enough headcount, as you mentioned. Um, that was something that, that Instagram fought for soon before the founders left. Uh, Kevin Systrom wanted employees who would work specifically on Instagram integrity issues um, because Instagram is built in a very different way. There's a, there's anonymity on Instagram. There's a, a big meme culture on Instagram. Uh, there are communities that hide behind hashtags. It's a lot of stuff that you can't find on Instagram unless you're looking for it proactively. And so he wanted to build out that team. And Facebook said, well, Zuckerberg, said, you need to do this via our core central Facebook team. You need to deal with these issues by working with the central org. And if you're the Facebook central org, you're going to prioritize the stuff that affects the most users because you have those limited resources. You're going to focus more on stuff that helps Facebook. So when you look at, you you mentioned earlier that Facebook cannot buy uh, any other social network. It would be just a regulatory nightmare for them. So when you look forward to what's going on today and what's going to happen in the next few years. TikTok is the is all the kids are obsessed with. Does Facebook try to copy them uh, in in the way that they've copied other platforms? Is that is this is this just going to be the business model going forward, or do they have other bigger problems to worry about? Is, is that the right business business proposition to continue to copy? all of the successful platforms um, or is there going to be kind of a point where, you know, it no longer looks like the thing that it was and people stop using it anyway? Facebook is definitely going to try to copy whatever they can. That's, that's one of their biggest MOs and sometimes it works often. It doesn't. Um, but there are, they are in this company that rewards rapid experimentation and might as well, if something's working somewhere, 
they have all of these tools that they track what people are doing on the internet in order to guide their strategic roadmap. Uh, one of those tools was recently uh, disarmed a little bit by Apple. It's called Onavo. Um, what that was doing is it was tracking anyone who downloaded Onavo. Facebook could see not just uh, what apps they were using, but also what portion of the app they spent the most time on and um, you know how often they went there. And they would use that data to say, oh, well, we should buy WhatsApp. Oh, well, we should copy Snapchat. And, you know, we should take a look at TikTok. And so these are things that are just baked into the corporate culture. And I don't see that changing. All right. Last couple of questions for you, and then we'll let you go. Um, one question is, when you um, were reporting this book, we, you know, there's always there's always these things that you come across that are the kind of blow your mind moments where you, you didn't expect to find out something about your reporting or, or you know, it led you down a, a road that you weren't exactly even looking for. What was the thing with this book uh, when you were reporting that kind of really stood out to you? Well, I was definitely shocked about the way that Zuckerberg handled the acquisition at the end because knowing everything we know about about him and this kind of rapid uh, fire experimentation and being willing to to uh, destroy what you've done before in order to succeed in the future um, clearly wasn't living by his own philosophy. Um, so that was very surprising. But I would say that uh, the biggest surprise for me was learning how Instagram actually directed our culture and promoted certain users and listened to certain users and really had a hand in deciding what became popular in society. And from, you know, perspective of covering social media, I've spent so much time talking with with Twitter, with Facebook about how they're a neutral platform and they don't want to tip the scales or decide what good content looks like on their sites. And, and here's Instagram taking product suggestions from Taylor Swift and um, creating a campaign for Miley Cyrus so she doesn't quit. And it, it just all of, it, it, if you read my book, you'll see all of these really individualized ways that they work with celebrities and also regular people who they think could become more famous. And last question for you. Um, when you think about the, um, the story, the Instagram story, it's really a story about characters and people and, and um, as all of these stories are, but you know, you really kind of, you really paint them in an amazing way in the book. And, and one of the things I kind of walk away from the book from is realizing is that so much of, what everyone is doing, um, you know, the people that run these platforms, you know, they're driven a lot by ego and by the attention they get and, and by, you know, being famous in some respects, even though the platform created that world. And I'm curious, do you think that um, Kevin and uh, Mike, if they regret leaving, if there's, you know, and they have so much money, it's, it's, it's kind of obscene, but is there a dream for them to go and eventually start something else like is there a world where they you know the vine guys left after they sold vine to twitter they were fed up with the way vine ended up you know being essentially essentially shut down but just the, the way it didn't work out and so they've been working on a competing vine like is there a world do you think where 
um, the Instagram founders go off and create another Instagram to compete with with Zuckerberg, or or are they going to move on to something else? I definitely could see them building another product, and I actually think that they maybe would do it together. They they're such a team in everything that they do, which is really rare to see. I, in contrast to your book, Hatching Twitter, <laughs> really the relationship that those two have is is so interesting and complimentary. What we've seen today is they've really come out of the shadows to weigh in on coronavirus. Uh, Mikey Krieger has built a product to allow people to order from local restaurants that maybe didn't have delivery before. Um, Kevin has been opining on how Instagram's viral growth may inform how we think about the COVID-19 viral growth. And so I think that they're they're contributing to the current conversation in a way that is, is kind of unexpected for, for people who have mostly worked in technology. Fascinating. Well, it will be interesting to see how it all plays out and how, um, how Instagram looks at the end of all of this because um, it's definitely... It's definitely changing. I would say for the better in some respects, but as with everything, for the worse too. Uh, the book is fantastic. I loved every second of it. It was a true page turner. Uh, no filter, the inside story of Instagram by Sarah Freer. Thank you so much for coming on today and taking the time to chat with us. Thanks for having me. Thanks to my guests today, Sydney Gressel and Sarah Fryer. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a glowing review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thank you, of course, to my sponsors this week. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I'll see you all next week. I actually have some very exciting news next week, so make sure you tune in. And don't forget to wash your hands. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.